after reading through this passage a few times earlier this week um, and just seeing that after having the scripture read, I was mostly tempted to just say, amen, you are now dismissed. Um, how do you add to that, right? It's a very practical passage that uh, we're given from Paul. And, uh, um, and so that's kind of how it's going to run today. There's going to be a lot of practical things for us to do. And so uh, this is kind of like the second to the last week of our journey through the book of First Thessalonians, which means summer is almost over already. Um, it's gone by fast, uh, as it always does. And so, and then as I was thinking about, wow, this is really like a list, it really actually brought back some memories of some, uh, some, some uh, like my summer breaks actually when I was growing up. Because, so when my brother was born, uh, my mom became a stay-at-home mom, and we kind of grew up elementary school, early middle school, like she was always home, always around, always doing stuff with us. Uh, but when we, we started to get old enough to be home alone by ourselves for most of the day, um, my mom decided she wanted to start to go back to work part-time, and so we would have weeks where there sometimes there'd be two or three days in a row where my brother and I, we'd have the house to ourselves, and man, did we look forward to those days when we were home alone. Like, the house to ourselves, we were 10 and 13 years old, like, we felt like the kings of the world, you know, so we had plans, you know, we were going to play video games all day, we were going to eat the chocolate chips that my mom said we couldn't eat, we were not going to read any books, you know, we were going to live it up as young, as young boys like to do. Um, except we always forgot about one big detail that my mom would leave for us before she got out in the morning. And so we would wake up all excited, usually after she had left for the day, take a shower, get dressed, and, and then start to rush downstairs to get going with our plans and see if we could get to the GameCube first. Um, only to get down to the dining room and see there on the table, it was bam, the list. The capital T, the capital L list. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The, when I come home, if you're sitting around playing video games, every single thing on this list better be 110% done. We knew that was, like, you know, there was dishes, folding laundry, cleaning the bathrooms, vacuuming the living room, picking up the dog dropping, sweeping the kitchen, uh, getting your toys out of the yard so dad can mow when he gets home, and on and on and on. We had that list of things that we had to do that mom would leave for us. And every single time, this list caught us off guard. I don't know why we expected any different. <laughs> um, but if you asked us back then, we thought it was cruel and unusual punishment. We were like, we knew what our constitutional rights were. Like, you, can't, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, come to know now, like, I'm very appreciative of that because of my house. I know how to clean my house, Right? Um, but while we were expecting a, ho a day of fun and relaxation and kind of doing our own thing, um, the list then was dropped on us, and it would always kill our mood a little bit. And so most of the time, we would all get it done as good as you can as a 10 and 13-year-old, right? Um, and we would carry on with our day, but sometimes we'd skip stuff and hope mom didn't notice. That never worked out. <laughs> she, I mean, come to find out it's easy to tell when your boys didn't clean the bathroom like you asked them to. <laughs> Um, but we would only do it at the end of the day. We were only doing these things because we knew we had to. And we were, um, we were afraid of the consequences that would come afterwards. For me and my brother, losing access to the GameCube was a really big deal. You know, and I bring up that story because, you know, if we're not careful in how we view the passage for today, um, it can almost feel like that very same thing, right? So as we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has talked a lot about how he loves the Thessalonian church. You know, he's thankful for their strong faith. He was encouraged by the report that Timothy brought back that they're flourishing and they're thriving in church. 
He's longing so badly to come see them again. He encourages them to keep going, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome things. You know, he's kind of helped them answer some questions. And, he's, and as we talked about last week, he's given them an immense hope for the future return of Christ and that, what that means for God's people. And so as you're reading a letter, or if, letter and as if you put yourself in, in the positions of the Thessalonians, you kind of might be having that kind of feeling of like, yeah, life is good. We've got this figured out. Um, things are going really well. Paul loves what we're doing. That This is really good. And so we're just, can, we can just keep on sitting back, doing the same thing, and, and we'll be all right. And until Jesus comes back, we got this. And then, bam, right here, all of a sudden, this boom, 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 the list hits. And maybe you're tempted to feel that begrudging sense of duty and guilt of like, oh yeah, there's all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, all these boxes that I have to check every day in order to feel like I'm actually being a good Christian. You know, and, but then also too, that also, but aren't we saved by grace and not through what we do? Um, what is, what is, why is there this to-do list here at the end of this book? And so as we go through the passage this morning, and that's exactly what I want to help us avoid thinking when we read this passage and we think about how we can apply it to our lives. Because Paul is just isn't give, he's not giving them just an extra to-do list that we have to obligate ourselves to and have to check off the boxes every day or else fill in the blank. It, it goes way deeper than that when we talk about our walk with Jesus. And so who, actually though, through this whole entire level, or letter, excuse me, Paul is really talking about an entire lifestyle shift for those who call themselves Christians, for those who follow Jesus. And so even though we are, it is true, we are saved by grace and not through works, so that no one may boast, as the scripture says. I'm not trying to say anything different than that today. What we are saying this morning is what we do and how we live in response to that does matter. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to just break down line by line, item by item, Paul's charge here, and go through each one and so then at the end, we'll kind of take that and we'll come back to this idea of, of how we live matters and wrap it all up. And so there's two different sections to this list if you're taking notes this morning. The first section is verses 12 through 15, and that's where Paul talks about how people in the church should treat each other. And the second section is verses 16 through 22, where Paul gives some basics about Christian living. And so that's kind of how I broke it up, and we'll kind of go through each one line by line. So here's part one, and it's on church relationships. And again, that's verses 12 through 15 of the passage this morning. So 12 and 13 says this, as, we, as Jason already read. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work, and live in peace with one another. And so in this part, Paul is specifically talking about us in the church, how the people of the church body should treat their leaders, their pastors, their elders, their deacons, anybody that has a, a position of authority within the church structure. And so as much as possible, we are to work as, as people of the church to literally know our elders and our pastors and our leaders well enough to have an intimate relationship and an intimate appreciation and respect for what they do. The, because the reality is the work of shepherding God's people is very important, and it comes with a high responsibility and a calling from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, 17 says this about this very same topic. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. 
So our pastors, Dean and Kyle and Mike and Kelsey and Josh and Paul, they should take joy in the work that they do leading this church and helping us grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We should have a high level of respect for what they do, and we should be taking time to honor and to appreciate them and what they do. Because it's not easy helping lead people closer to Christ. Like, this is a room full of a bunch of sinners, and we do not naturally go that direction on our own. Our hearts are not naturally drawn towards Christ of our own selves. And so dealing with the mess of broken people, of tough situations, of, the thing, of all that stuff, can drain the life out of a pastor so fast. So many pastors in the last two years have heard stories of, especially with, the thing, with COVID, have had to walk away from the profession because they just couldn't handle the stress of the situation anymore. And thankfully for us, it hasn't been the case, but we still need to be encouraging to them. We need to help our pastors when we can. We need to support them when we can. We need to support them when we may, maybe sometimes they'll make mistakes and respect their decisions and their leadership over us. You know, that doesn't mean we're not allowed to disagree and we have to go along with everything they say. Um, and we can't, it doesn't mean we can't voice our opposing opinions on certain issues. I think our pastors would be the first to say a certain level of disagreement and discussion in a community is really great and a really healthy thing to have because not one single person has a full picture view of everything that's going on. And they will admit that they don't know everything, that they can make, make mistakes, but when we notice those things, we need to approach them with honor and respect and grace. And ultimately, if they make a decision that we disagree with or that you disagree with, trust that our, our leaders are making a decision seeking the Lord, striving to do what's best for the church community, and striving to do what they feel is best for our witness in this city. And so we are blessed to be in a church with amazing leadership. We sit under some of the best leaders in the city of Duluth and Superior, in my opinion. They are wise and they are humble, and they don't take anything lightly when it comes to steering Rock Hill in one direction or another. So for us as Rock Hill Chester Park, what that really means is, is when we sit under great leadership like we do, we need to let them know that they are appreciated. We need to hold them high, with high honor, speak highly of them, hold them up, and let's go out of our way, Rock Hill Chester Park, to make sure that Dean feels loved so that when he, like the weeks like this week, when he's out adventuring in uh, Yellowstone and wherever he is out west, that he would feel comfortable that we've got this, that he doesn't need to worry that church isn't going to happen. Um, and I believe that we are doing that very well, and I think that we have an awesome community for that. So. That's one thing I wanted to make sure to say is let's keep, as Paul says, let's keep on doing what we're doing well in that area. And so the next verse, moving on with how we, how we to relate to each other in the church itself. And so verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. And so what does this actually mean? This, can be, this one's a little bit um, harder to swallow, I think, for some people. So it means that we should care enough and love our brothers and sisters enough to be able to have tough conversations with each other when, some, when we see that someone is stagnant or not living their faith out. Because if we're brothers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are family together. And we should want to see each other growing in our faith. We should want to see each other flourishing in our relationship with Jesus and with each other. And we want to see people contributing to the mission of the church. We want to see people grow. And I think sometimes we can tend to be too nice or too afraid when we see something in somebody else, especially one of our closer friends, and we don't necessarily want to offend them, so we just choose maybe to let things, some things go or just overlook it and maybe talk about it with somebody later, but not actually have a, conver a constructive conversation with our friend or with our family member who we see some, some things going on. 
And I want to challenge us in that this week. Because how can somebody grow if they don't realize they have something to work on? How can somebody grow if they don't realize that, hey, you talk like that a lot. I don't think we should really be talking about that in that way. How do they know if we don't tell them? Or maybe they realize they do have an issue, but lack an understanding of how to actually practically do something about that. So we should be able to be, we approach each other honestly and firmly, and, and especially those who are close within the church, to talk about our sin struggle, to talk about sin patterns, or patterns of idleness or disruptiveness, whatever that might be. And so I want to be clear about one thing, though. These are not we're not talking about like Sunday morning conversations where you're in the middle of the group of everybody's talking at the end and you approach, hey Joe, sorry if your name is Joe, um, I know we don't know each other super well yet, but you need to just be more, more respectful to your wife and your family, out in the view of everyone. That's not what I'm talking about doing. You know, those are conversations that need to be had at that private level, that, that personal level of, hey man, I noticed these things in your life and I want you to grow and I want you to be a stronger man or I want you to be a stronger woman of Christ. And so I, I, I'm seeing this. Can I, can I help you walk through this? And can we get better at this together? You know, honestly, the best context we have for that at Rock Hill is our city groups and our DNA groups. You know, they, that, that whole area of our church is designed for us to be able to dig way deeper with one another. Because even at Rock Hill Chester Park, you know, it kind of feels small today, but in two weeks from now, the students will be back and this room is going to be full. And praise the Lord for that. But it can be harder in this bigger church context to really feel like you can dig deep with people. And so kind of a, 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 to put a plug on that, like if you, if you want to dig deeper in the community of Rock Hill, find a CD group, find a DNA group, and start going. And, be, and when you see something and, when, you, and when, you, when, you, when you're working on these things with other people, be willing to stick around with them and work on it together. Because we all have things that we know that we fall short in that we want to grow in every single day. And that's the heart of Christian discipleship. That's really what Paul is actually saying here is let's be discipling each other and calling each other out respectfully and gracefully. And so with that too, if you find yourself on the receiving end of one of these conversations, if somebody is approaching you and saying, man, I'm noticing something in your life that I think you might want to work on, be willing to take that. It's hard enough for a lot of people just to muster up the courage at all to say anything. So be gracious in your response. Don't make it worse by being confrontational. Resist that urge to kind of defend yourself right away. Go, well, yeah, but this, this, and this. Um, spend some time thinking and reflecting on what they have said before you actually give a response. Be thankful also that they even said something in the first place because that shows that they actually care about you. You might end up ultimately disagreeing on their analysis of your life or what they see or your actions, but be willing to talk about it with them. Be willing to have that conversation and that dialogue with each other. Nobody's perfect. We're not expecting that out of anybody. So be willing to receive that counsel for what it is. It's love from your friends. Your close friends especially should not be trying to shut you down. If they care about you and your relationship with Jesus, the most loving thing we can do for each other is not let each other be idle or stagnant in our faith. Real friends and real family push each other to grow every single day. That's what a community of true believers of, in Christ should look like every single day. And that's something that I think um, that we can strive for to be, to be better at every single day in our walk with Christ. And so along with that then, verse 14 also continues and, he, and Paul says, Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. And these two are kind of related, um, but I split them up because there's a, this, these, this, this one's a little bit more straightforward. So if you see somebody struggling or, or somebody who's disheartened or discouraged or kind of down, um, don't overlook them. 
and also be willing to go to, to be with them, journey with them a little bit farther than just saying, I'll pray for you. And could be, but yes, that prayer is important. We do want to be praying for people. And we'll get more on that in a few minutes, but get real practical in that moment too, beyond that. Listen to their struggle. Relate to them. Always remind them of the true hope that we hold in Christ when you see somebody who is discouraged. If you know them well, invite them to do something that they love if you think that's appropriate for the scenario. Like sometimes people just need to know and feel tangibly from other people that they're loved and cared for and reminded that they have value and that they have worth in Jesus Christ every single day. And with that, then help the weak. So Paul, is, this is a little bit different. So Paul is talking about, when he, when he says the weak, those who are struggling with or have more to learn about spiritual and moral strength and more about what the Bible actually says. So what we should do when we see somebody who might be struggling or, or, or kind of weaker in their faith, we need to hold them up firmly. And we need to help them grow in their knowledge of the scriptures. We need to make sure that they're coming to church, get them to the to, to city group, to Bible studies, and get them into context where we can help them learn more about God's word and how to apply it for their lives. Help them to understand how to study it for themselves. Show them how they can be sure of their salvation in Christ. And I think when you take these two, these two things together, the biggest thing that we can is whenever we see something, someone struggling in, in our community, don't leave them behind if we can help it. Now, it's not your personal responsibility to develop and help every single struggling person you come across in the community because that's just way too much for one person, right? That's why we live in a community. But if you do notice someone, at least say something to someone who you know can invest into that person or you know who does already invest in that person. Do at least something so that some people are not being left behind in their walk with Jesus because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to look out for each other because the world isn't going to look out for us on, on its own. And with that too, then, be patient for those who are in a tough season, who's somebody who is still learning about the basics of their faith or somebody who might be discouraged or disheartened with life right now. Not everything can get sorted out in one single conversation. Sometimes it might take months or weeks or could even take years for someone to come through a discouraging season. But don't give up on them. Keep praying. Keep encouraging them. Keep pointing them to the scriptures. Keep pointing them to their value and their worth and, their, and the love that Jesus Christ has because it, we are a family and that's what families do. And finally, for this, last, for this first section, verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And so there are a lot of sinners in this church. I'm one, and every single one of us is actually. So things can get a little messy and the reality is, if you spend time in church, you're going to get hurt by some people. It's going to happen, because none of us is perfect. And as followers of Jesus, when those moments happen, and when they come, we need to learn to practice forgiveness and not revenge. We don't need to be friends with everybody, but we must forgive. And we must live at peace with one another, even if we grind each other's gears and don't always get along. There is no such thing as getting even in the church. There's no room for that. That's not what we do as followers of Jesus. It's because if you're in Christ, if you've given your life over to him and said, I'm going to follow Jesus with everything that I have, you've already been forgiven yourself on a level so deep that our brains just can't even comprehend how the infinite gap that Jesus has bridged for us to, to God. So that when we, if we don't forgive others for them when they sin against us, it's quite frankly insulting to what Jesus has done for you. 
It's not your responsibility to punish others for their sins against you. They were dealt with on the cross, or they will be dealt with when Jesus comes back. It's not your responsibility. And so this, should, this mentality should also be true of us Christians when we interact with people outside of the church. Because seeking revenge and payback is not how Jesus showed us how to live. That would be how the world says we're supposed to get even with people. But if we look no different than the world, then what's the point of what we're doing here this morning? This kind of behavior will only destroy our witness to those around us, and it will also rip apart our church family. And Jesus, and at the end of the day, Jesus is the perfect judge, so let him be just that. Forgive those who sin against you, and strive to do good towards everyone, as Paul says. It's one, of those, it's one of those topics where when we think about that, and it, it makes sense, right? But I think when we think about it with a clear mind and a clear conscience, you go, oh yeah, I, w- I would never do that. I would never be that person. But even if I'm honest with myself, when, I have, when I've had moments where people have sinned against me or, or offended me in a certain way in the church, there is that little voice inside your head that says, yeah, well now I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to do that for them, or now they're just on their own. Um, and that little voice, I think, lives in, in all of us. And so um, we really need to be aware of that and not act out on those options, on those, on those thoughts. Um, because as I've said, that's not what Christians do. And so that's kind of how, that's the, and so that's the end of this first part. And as Paul said, of where we're talking about how we relate to, to each other in the church. And as you see, we'll kind of wrap, bring that back in later because now we'll move on to part two on the basics of Christian living. Um, these, these two things do relate to each other. Um, but verse 16 then goes on to say, after Paul, now, now we're talking about um, what we do um, just in general as Christians. So verse 16 says, rejoice always. And so if you are a Christian, joy is appropriate at all times. And this is where the gospel can come in. Why? Because, those, because, we, are who, because who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us is, is incredibly good news. Because if we're in Jesus, we were once dead in our sins. If you're not in Christ, you are dead in your sins. You're lost in darkness to the world. And there's no hope of anything you can do for life outside of Christ. But the good news is, is God doesn't leave us in that state. He just never, his plan was never to leave us in that state of separation from him. He sent Jesus in our place to die, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And now, once we choose to accept and believe that gift... We are born again, and we are alive in the family of God. We've been given a new heart, and we've been given a new life. And so now we have a future hope of Jesus' return and our resurrection with him forever. And so true joy takes that and goes beyond everyday emotions. True joy and rejoicing always looks like being rooted in the truth of the gospel and rejoicing on the good days. We're thankful for his blessings and his grace extended to us every single day that we have life on this planet. Because when, when we wake up and we have breath in our lungs in the morning, we know that we have purpose. We know that we have a mission. We know that we have a reason for being here. So we're joyful and we can rejoice in that. And true joy also looks like being grateful on the hard days. When life is closing in around us and feels like the walls are crumbling in, it, true joy looks like being grateful on those days that our hope does not rest in this world, but in the one to come, in the hope that we have of what's coming next where everything will be perfect, where we will be with God forever, where there is no more death, there is no more loss, there are no more goodbyes, there's no more sin, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more arguments, no more divorce, no no more brokenness in this world. Because with that hope, 
with that in mind, we can still rejoice on the dark days of life and say, God, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm in a really tough season. I'm, I'm disheartened and I, I don't know what to do, but we can still choose in those days to worship Jesus because of who he is and what he's done for us, because of that hope that we have in, in, in him coming back. So true joy and rejoicing always isn't actually just a day-to-day emotion that comes and goes. What Paul is talking about here is having an attitude in our heart based on what Jesus has given us, that eternal hope in his salvation and him coming back and us living with God forever. And so now then pair that with verse 17 and 18. He says, pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've wrestled with the meaning of this verse. Like we've heard this verse before, pray continually. And I think we're all, we're, that question comes to mind of like, okay, so then how are we supposed to pray constantly? I don't understand what that means. And thankfully, as I was reading about this, um, I don't think that's what Paul meant actually meant literally. Like we're not supposed to literally pray repetitiously or continuously without a break. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so Jesus said it. He doesn't, wanna, he doesn't want long, drawn-out player prayers and babbling that doesn't really go anywhere. What I think he, Paul is talking about and what Jesus and our Father in Heaven wants from us is they, He wants for our lives of prayer to be persistent, and to be regular every single day. And we could spend an entire summer, I think, just on that idea. So um, I'll just have to kind of condense it down, and I'll just give a few practical things for today. I, were, I recently heard uh, Charles Stanley say something along the lines of, your prayer life is your most important life as a Christian. And I read this week from John Frame, he said, God's eternal plan has determined that many things will be achieved by prayer, and many things will not be achieved without prayer. So prayer must be, as Christians, as important in our daily lives as eating and drinking and sleeping, because prayer is our main means of fellowship with God. He wants to be our real Father. He wants to be as a real, like a real person to us, because He is. And so making prayer a constant part of your life is not something that if you have time to do it today, you must make time to do it today. Because at the end of the day, if we don't pray, we don't know God. And Pastor Kyle once says, if we live a life that doesn't, if we're living, going through our lives and not praying, we're living as functional atheists. And I remember the first time he said that, it absolutely wrecked my heart. Because I've been in a season where I was struggling with praying. Like, prayer is a vital, is vital for us as breathing in and out. Even when we're discouraged, we have to continue to pray regularly and continue to ask the things that are on our heart. God will answer your prayers in his time and according to his will. And so as, you, like, as Paul kind of closes out this section, he says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so we, a lot of times we ask, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, it's 
rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, and know Jesus and make him known. Like, that's God's will for our life. Like, that's what he created us to do, is to know him and to be intimate with him in that way. And so, don't overlook the importance of that. Like, it can be a confusing verse, but just understand that as we walk out of here this morning, like, prayer must be at the root of everything that we, everything that we do. So next, Paul talks about then the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. And so I think we hear, we've heard, I, I think a lot of us have heard this phrase before, like especially in the Christianese culture language. Um, but I think a lot of time, like we don't really understand what it means. And I think I've heard it used in a ways that a lot of times it just doesn't make sense because like it goes deeper than just going, man, that off-tune guitar really quenched the Spirit for me in worship this morning. Like it just, it wasn't feeling it, man. Like um, it's way deeper than that and there's way more meaning than that. And what Paul actually means here when he says, do not quench the Spirit is that the fire of God's Spirit in our lives and in our hearts is not to be doused with sin. The Holy Spirit dwells inside and lives inside of every single believer from the moment they choose to put their faith in Jesus. And he is grieved when God's children refuse to give up their old way of life and their old way of sins in exchange for the righteous life now in Christ. So in other words, if you aren't fighting your sin with urgency and, and rep repentance, then you are quenching the work of the Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit's job is to lead us and guide us in our new life within Jesus so that we can look more like Jesus every single day. That is why He is with us. That is why God brought Him to be with us. Now, that doesn't mean we should never be sinning again. Like, we will struggle. I'm not saying that you're not allowed to have bad days. Even Paul struggled. He said, the things that I wish I would do, I'm just not doing them in Romans. However, there is a difference between struggling and fighting. There is a difference between struggling and striving for healing and sexual wholeness in your life or just watching inappropriate things on the internet every day and then maybe telling somebody about it later. There is a difference between working to be patient and understanding and and level-headed in difficult situations, and just blowing every, up every time and letting anger flow, and then hoping the apology later suffices for struggling with it. Whatever sins you deal with, are you actively fighting? And are you actively fighting with the Holy Spirit? Or are you sitting simply letting them go untouched and quenching the work that the Spirit wants to do in your life? This doesn't mean that you should be questioning your salvation every time you have a bad day. Like, we're all going to have bad days. We're all going to give in to those, those sins of our hearts a lot of times. But, if you are a Christian, and you, if you are a growing Christian, you should be able to look back on your life six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, a decade ago. You should be able to look back and confidently say, yes, my life is different now than it was back then. That lady who just ran the stop sign in front of me, I would have blown up at that a year ago. But look at me now. I didn't even think of it until about two hours later. Oh yeah, I would have been angry at that. Like, I am growing. I am fighting. Every single day. You should be able to see that gradual progress. Like this is a lifelong journey we're talking about. Like it's not going to just fix itself tomorrow. God could do that, but that's usually not how he chooses to work in our lives. And so then with that now, verses 20 and 22 do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. 
And so before we get too far into this charge, um, I do want to recognize that there are different views on what prophecy is and how it works in our Christian lives today. Um, And so the word that Paul uses here for prophecy in this um, can be translated both as um, a spoken revelation from God, as in like the spiritual gift of prophecy, but it is also, and more likely in this case, referring to the written word of Scripture as, as prophecy. And so we're not going to get bogged down, though, this morning in like whether we think that the spiritual gift of prophecy still exists today or not, because it definitely is still up for debate. That is really for another time. Because the main point of this charge, at the end of the day, is that whenever we witness prophecy or the preaching of God's word, we must carefully examine what is being said. And this means right now for us that every single word that I have said this morning must be carefully measured against what is actually written in the Bible. And so like, I promise that I've spent a significant amount of time this week making sure that what I say here this morning is accurate. Dean does that every single week as well. We, we, we put the time in, we study, we make sure that we're, what we're saying is accurate. But I'm not perfect. You know, Pastor Dean isn't perfect. John Piper isn't perfect. C.S. Lewis wasn't perfect. Everybody's going to say something, things at some point that are no good. And so as you consume preaching, as you listen to God's word, if you, or as you, as you witness a prophecy being spoken over your life or over a church body, you test it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't just throw it out and assume it's all wrong, or don't just throw it to the wayside and think it's not a big deal. Receive it with seriousness, and then test it against what God's word actually says. If it's wrong, throw it out and reject it as not truth. Um, because anything that God doesn't say isn't worth listening to. But if it is true, and it is good, according to God's word, then embrace it wholeheartedly and take it and apply it to your life. And so, notice though that I said that if it's true and good, according to God's word, not whether your feelings think it's good or not. Because in our culture, we have this tendency to think our feelings are truth. But your feelings are not truth. Your individual views of the world are not the ultimate truth of how the world works. If you are in Christ, you stand under the one capital T truth of the scriptures and God's word. Everything else is of this world and should be rejected. So as we listen to the preaching of God's word and read it for ourselves, we all need to be prepared to reject our feelings and our small understanding of reality and embrace what the Bible says to be true no matter what culture is telling us. God designed this world, and he made every single one of us. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what is good for you, and he does not withhold anything that is good for us. And so in a world where truth has been twisted and made to be whatever somebody wants, as Christians, we must stand firm on the scriptures. That's what Paul's saying here. That's the base, one of the basic foundations of being a Christian. And the reality is, too, is that consistency, if we live like that, if we're like that as a community of believers, that will set us apart from all others. I think if you were actually to personally talk to a lot of people, like this whole idea that truth can be whatever we want it to be is an exhausting idea. And people long for that consistency. They long for something that they can plant their flag and go, I know this to be true above all else. And so finally this morning, we'll kind of bring it all together now. It's a lot like I said, there's, there's probably a lot of things that I left out of each one of those ideas. I mean, the reality is we could have spent the whole, the whole summer just in this passage of Thessalonians on how to make all these things happen in our lives. 
So what should we do with all of it? Why is this not just an obligatory to-do list of things that we need to check off every day or else we're going to get in trouble? Paul is actually outlining a lifestyle shift that he's, that he's expecting that Christians will have when they choose to follow Jesus. Because when we make the decision to follow Jesus in our lives, the decision doesn't end there. Like, Christianity isn't just about stamping your ticket to heaven and then you're good. Like, it's more than just praying that prayer that you prayed. It's more than just coming to church on most Sundays if you're not traveling or there's no football on TV. Levi Lusco once said, like, you weren't saved just so you wouldn't go to hell. Like, you were saved so that you could shake the very gates of hell. Like, we have a mission. And when we were truly born again in Christ, in new life, when we truly understand the depth of our sin and receive the free gift of the gospel of Jesus and his death on the cross, in the most important display of, human grace, of grace in human history, we, we get new hearts. And that heart naturally should desire to be like Jesus every single day. So this isn't really something that you have to like go home and figure out how to work, work, your, work your way into it. Your heart, if you are in Christ, should have that natural desire to want to be like Jesus. And in order to be like him, we have to live in response to what he, like, we have to live in response to what he did like it matters. And so all the things we've talked about, all of it, how Christians live in relation to one another, how we handle the basis of Christian life, these things are so important for us as believers to get right. I said it once already, but I'll say it again. You can't be saved by what you do. So don't hear that. But how you live in response to your salvation matters. There's a lot of ways to apply that. But let me leave you with two reasons why that's important. First, this is actually how you grow closer to God. That's the most important thing about our, life, our walk with Jesus, is that we have that established relationship with our Father in heaven. Your entire created purpose in life is to have a relationship with God. If you want to know why you exist this morning, that's it. That's the answer to that question. You were made to worship God above all else. And that is how we can move past obligation of a to-do list into the joyful heart that desires those things. That I'm going to do these things because I'm a follower of God. This is just who, what I am and because of what Jesus is for me, I have joy that I can do these things every day. Because I get to, I get to look different from the world every day and I get to participate in what God is doing, and I get to make him known in the world. That's the desire that should be motivating our hearts as we read these passages like this. Secondly, it is important to get these things right because of our, of our mission as Christians. Most people are going to find Jesus through you. Most people are going to make their decision to follow Jesus or not based on the life they see Christians living. And a lot of people, if we're honest, have written him off because they've met too many Christians. If we look no different than the world, then what's the point of following Jesus? If we, look no, if we offer nothing different than what the world offers, why would we come and do this every Sunday morning? Yes, it is true that he can reveal himself to someone in any way, at any time, and he does do that. But the vast majority of people who are going to find grace and forgiveness are going to find it because of a Christian who faithfully showed them the way. That's why it's so important to get it right. When people outside of the church want to know about Jesus, they look at us and they say, 
That's what Jesus is like. Either A, I want him, or no, I don't want him. So Rock Hill Chester Park, let's commit this morning to being the type of community that when people who don't know Jesus walk through those doors, when they come into this space, they would go, wow, if this is what living for Jesus is supposed to look like, then I want this. Whatever these people have, I want what they have. John 13, 34 and 35 says this, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love, so you now must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So really we could say that what Paul is writing is actually an exposition of John 13. He wants us, he's showing us and giving us practical ways of how we can love one another and how we can love the world and how we can love God. So as we go this week, here is what my challenge is for us. I know it seems overwhelming to tackle everything all at once. So don't, don't pretend that you can go home and do all 11 things or whatever it is all at once. So my challenge to you is to pick one or two things to work on in your life in the next month. I would highly recommend prayer being one of those things. I think we could all admit that prayer is something that we all can be better at. And then with that, find somebody in your life who you look up to in those areas and ask them to help you grow. Ask them, hey, I want to grow in the area of learning to love my pastors better. Can we talk about, can we meet up with coffee? Like, you do that really well. Can we have coffee next week and just show me and help me some ways where I can be more hospitable and, and and, and show our pastors how we love them. And as you grow then, keep coming back to passages like this. Keep coming back to the scriptures. And keep seeking for ways that you can continue to grow closer to God. One step at a time. You just take it one day at a time. And the next thing you know, it'll be a decade on down the road. And you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to say, Wow, I was a completely different person like back then. I thought I had it figured out, but man, I, was cra- I, was, I wasn't even close. Look at what God has done in my life now. That's how we make it to being 60, 70, 80 years in our journeys with Jesus and to still be faithful every day is one day at a time. Rock Hill Chester Park, we have an amazing group of people here. We have an amazing community. I know for a fact that we can put our arms around this idea and that we can be that kind of church. We really can make a difference in our community by loving one another well and continuing to do that. So don't hear this morning that I think we're not doing that well because we do that very, very well. And so really I hope that we would be encouraged this morning as we go to just keep on running the race, to keep on taking it one step at a time because through our love for God and one another, I really do believe that we can change this community and we can change our city. That's what I hope that we would take away here this morning.